Amen. If you want to follow along, uh, we'll be in Matthew 15, Matthew chapter 15. We're on our fifth Sunday of this sermon series, Not Like Me, fifth out of six. So next Sunday is the last. And um, I got to tell you, this has been a challenging sermon series. I'm like, who made me do this? Nobody made me do this. I, I had to do this. I chose to do this. Uh, but it's been personally challenging. I've talked to many of you who have said, gosh, this has really been challenging uh, to you as well. But this, just to let you know, it's been personally challenging to me too to really look at who in my own life have, are, are the people that are not like me that I don't necessarily associate with because I don't have to and what am I doing about it and what, I, I, all that to say I feel just as challenged maybe, just as challenged and this Sunday, um, Maybe if you think that it's been challenging before, this one is, get ready. Get ready. I'm going to read the text for you. And as I read it, I think you're going to feel some feels about Jesus. Just feel them. I'm just letting you know, just feel them. Don't, don't just jump and go like, well, that, I, you might not like it, but just feel it. And we're going to get into it. And you still might not like it, but there's something really good here. Just, just come with me on this. Matthew 15, starting in verse 21, ending in verse 28. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away. She keeps crying out after us. Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him, Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Okay, what do you do with this? So I had this idea, this thought that maybe it turns out, stay with me on this, okay? Maybe. God revealed to us in Jesus wasn't always nice. Wasn't always this image that we get. Just nice. This picture that we have in our minds of of Jesus in a white robe walking on the beach with the, the beauty pageant sash. The wind is in his hair. He's of course got blonde hair and blue eyes because he's Swedish. We all know that about Jesus. Isn't it funny, though? I mean, this is how uh, this picture on the right actually is a, is a classic American depiction of Jesus uh, drawn by a man named Warner Salmon, who actually was a covenanter, part of the Evangelical Covenant Church. And so this painting on the right, which many of you probably recognize, um, this, this has become like the painting of paintings for covenanters. I mean, this was like, he sent a lot of these out when he painted them, I believe in like the 50s, and he sent these out to a lot of um, covenant churches, and this became prized possessions for these covenant churches. You hang this up in a, in a prominent place in your church, and this is Jesus, and, he, and if, if you look this up on the interwebs, 
He's got blue eyes. It's interesting. It's interesting. And so what, what really starts to happen when you look at who is Jesus, and, and stay with me, we're getting somewhere with this, is that Jesus starts to look a lot like us. Different people in different places throughout history have really wanted Jesus to be like them. And so all of that led in the early 1900s, just going back a little bit before these paintings were pictured. In the early uh, paintings were pictured? That is, what kind of phraseology is that? Uh, these paintings were made. In the early 1900s, there was a movement called the Quest for the Historical Jesus. Don't know if you've ever heard of this or if this is just Bible scholar nerdy stuff that they had to teach us in seminary. Uh, but there was this thing called the Quest for the Historical Jesus. And the idea, the idea was... Let's try to distance ourselves from the place we live, the place we grew up in, all of our experience of Jesus, just get down to the facts of what we know of the first century, the days in which Jesus lived, what were people like then, what was culture like then, what was the language, all of these things that would have formed the human being, Jesus, the Jewish man who lived in the first century. They tried to get down to the nitty-gritty of who would this guy have been. And so the theory was you could, you could really dig through all of this stuff and narrow it down and you would find the real Jesus. So what did they find? Albert Schweitzer, in, in a quote attributed to him, and he sort of became the father of this movement, he said this, when historical Jesus scholars look down into the deep well of the evidence for Jesus they tend to see a Jesus that looks a lot like themselves. So even those who tried to sift through all the data, distance themselves from their studies, looked into the well and the reflection they saw of Jesus was themselves. And so throughout history, we've kind of tried to like clean up Jesus. Clean him up. Make him like us. Maybe more palatable. And that's where we get that kind of white robe, blue sash, Blonde hair, blue eye, wind blowing through his hair, Jesus. I don't know, uh, I believe it was in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a movie called Dogma. I'm not endorsing this movie by any means. But in this movie, there was a fascinating scene where the Catholic Church is trying to reinvent themselves. Apparently, Jesus has become too rough. And the Jesus on the cross isn't palatable anymore. And so they do a marketing campaign called Catholicism. Wow. And George Carlin plays the role of a priest. And so enough said, right? George Carlin. (laughs) And he's talking about Catholicism. Wow. And it's a new thing. We want to get Jesus out there to the masses. And we want to rebrand Jesus. And they rebrand Jesus with the buddy Christ is what they call it. It's the buddy Christ. He's your pal. He's your homie. He'll, He'll come where you're at. He'll meet you where you are. He won't challenge you. He's just a nice guy. He's nice. And then we get to our text today, where it appears that maybe Jesus wasn't always nice. And let me be clear, the word nice has sort of become one of those uh, meaning nothing words, right? Like interesting. Have you, have you caught yourself using the word interesting and you realize that didn't really help the person understand what I was saying? Because interesting can be like, oh, that's interesting, or it was interesting. It can, it's just a, a nothing word. And nice can be the same thing. Like when I tell my kids, be nice to each other. Well, what does that really mean? Well, just be nice. Don't, 
do the opposite of that. I mean, it's just, it just becomes this, what are you even talking about? Nice, according to the dictionary. Because I, I had to look it up, like, what, are, what does this word really mean? And the first three words were pleasing, agreeable, delightful. And don't we all want that in our mental construct of God? A God who is pleasing, maybe more like this. Agreeable, he, he, God is just like me. He agrees with me on every point. It's wonderful. It's amazing how when I read my Bible, God, it, it just confirms everything I believe. Because God is super nice. He's pleasing. He's agreeable. He's delightful. He doesn't really challenge or call us to something bigger. And yet, we get to this text today where it seems like maybe God as revealed to us in Christ isn't always pleasing, agreeable. This woman probably didn't find him all too delightful. In fact, today we see in our text, and I'm going to back up a little bit even and see that Jesus uh, at the beginning of, of Matthew 15, he's actually irritable. Some of the things he says are jarring. And sometimes, even in talking to this woman, it's downright harsh. He actually insults some people. Jesus, is he allowed to do that? I mean, that's the question. It's a weird question. Is Jesus allowed to do that? You have to ask yourself in your own mental construct of Jesus, this, this whatever Jesus looks like, if, if you just close your eyes and somebody says, Jesus, whatever you, is he allowed to be harsh, insulting, irritable? Is, do you, do I, do we allow him to be that, to actually have real human emotion? See, in our text today, Jesus has just had it out with the Pharisees. He's just had it out with the Pharisees. At the beginning of chapter 15, he's, he's going, he's talking to the teachers of the law and with the Pharisees, and they ask him a simple question. And they're challenging him, though. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. And Jesus says, why do you break the commands of God for the sake of your tradition? He's had it. Okay, he's had it with these guys. And he goes into this thing where in verse 7 of chapter 15, he finally says to them, you are hypocrites. I mean, Jesus, is, he's had it. He's had enough. And he, and he keeps going and keeps going and, and telling them about, you know, like, gosh, this clean, cleaning your hands stuff, is that really what you're concerned about, you guys? He's had it. He's had it with them. He's impatient with the Jewish people who, as we've looked at over the last months, the Jewish people were the ones that should have got it. He came for them. He came to His own, but His own rejected Him. He came to them and His, his heart is pouring out to tell them that He's the Messiah. God is for you. have come to save you. And they reject Him and He's had enough. He's had enough. And He goes on to call them blind guides leading people into the pit. This is what he's saying to these people. Like, you're just blind guides leading people into the pit. So the disciples, moving right along, verse 12, say to Jesus, uh, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when you heard me, they heard you say these things? And then Jesus goes into this thing about, about plants and this parable and, and all of these things about um, what's going to be pulled up by the roots and, and these blind guides. That's, they're just blind 
And one of them says, like, oh, we don't get it still, Jesus. What are you talking about? And Jesus turns his attention now to his disciples and says to them in verse 16, are you still so dull? Hypocrites, blind guides. Now you guys don't get it too? Seriously, he's had it up to here. He's not having a good day. And so he says, let's get out of this place. Let's go to this region called Tyre and Sidon, a place away from Jews where maybe they can just get a break and his heart doesn't have to break by all these people who should get it, who don't get it. Jesus, it seems, is trying to get kind of a retreat, a rest, some respite away from these people who are driving him crazy. And as he's walking along, this woman comes along, a Syrophoenician woman, a Greek, a Canaanite descendant who calls out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. This woman who's not part of the Jews is declaring that Jesus is Lord, the son of David. So already there's a hint, Matthew's giving us a hint that she, she understands something about who Jesus is, maybe even more so than the Jewish people. Maybe even at this point his disciples are still struggling with who Jesus is and she's crying out and Jesus ignores her. The disciples rebuke her, send her away. She's annoying. She's just yelling at us. Jesus, tell her to get out of here. See, the disciples, they're not nice. They're not nice. We, we kind of okay. know this about the disciples. In all these stories where there's people begging, crying, screaming on the side of the road, Jesus, have mercy on me. The disciples are always the ones that are like, quiet. He doesn't have time for you. We've got important things to go. This is Jesus. We're on a mission here. And I think there's a little bit of them that's like, and they want more time with Jesus. They don't want him to keep stopping for these annoying people. He doesn't have time for you. Come on, Jesus, tell her to be quiet. we got to move on. And for whatever moment, usually, for whatever reason, in this moment, usually in those stories, Jesus does stop and turns to the person that acknowledges them. But in this particular story, Jesus just says, you know, Yeah, you're right. I came for the lost sheep of Israel. That's his statement. What is this about? He's saying, I I didn't come for these people. I have a mission. I have a task. I came for the Jews. This is not the first time Jesus has used this language. Back in Matthew 10, Jesus sends his disciples out and says, go to the lost sheep of Israel. He's indicating that his mission, his initial mission, is to come for those Jewish people to pronounce that the kingdom of God is here, repent. This is is Jesus' mission. He's trying to stay on mission. And, And at this point, this lady, he's like, I just need a break. I need a break because my own people don't get it. I can't get my own people to listen, so how would I have time for outsiders I'm kind of psychoanalyzing Jesus there, but I mean, it's there. It's kind of there in the text that he's like, I just don't have time for you. He's irritated. And now she just, she's still, she's, she's persistent. Throws herself down on her knees before Jesus. Lord, help me. It's desperate. 
surely now Jesus will answer, right? I mean, if you just, if you didn't know the story, you're expecting like, okay, this is Jesus, he's really nice. So now he has to answer her because she's on her knees in front of him. And in every other instant, we see Jesus say like, okay, fine. Yes, you have great faith. And instead, he looks at this woman and says, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Ouch. Ouch. In case you missed it, Jesus, Jesus, he just called her and her kind dogs. That's not nice. If I was in a conversation with you and said like, hey, I don't have time for you, you dog, you wouldn't be like, okay, I'll try again next week. You'd be like, you know, that guy, that pastor of ours is not real nice. What's his problem? Did he not eat breakfast this morning? Did he do like Jay and eat, you know, the apple from hell you called it? That's going <laughs> to, by the way, that's going to stay with me forever. This image of Jay eating whole garlic cloves and saying that it's the apple from the pit of hell. I love it. I love it. Where was I? Where was I? But okay, so Jesus looks at this woman and calls her a dog. He just insulted her. What? I mean, he's on a streak here. You hypocrites, you blind guides, leading people off a cliff, that's all you're doing. Oh, you disciples, you don't get it too. Are you, are you still that dull? He's had it. He's had it. He's trying to do ministry. He's trying to see people get it. He's frustrated. And now there's this woman and she's begging and he's like, it's, I didn't come for you. Don't you get it now? Dogs. Where, where did the nice Jesus go with his blue sash and the wind in his hair who just goes around and you're healed and you're healed? Where is he? He's not here in this story. And in this moment, it's just, it's just really weird. What is he doing? And, and for me, at least, it started to really make me think, what constructs do I have? Have I built up of who Jesus is and how he has to act, how Jesus has to behave for him to be my Jesus? Or can I read the text and say, what is going on here? What is Jesus revealing to us? Luckily. I say luckily because what happens next just gives us this whole different lens of who Jesus is. His person, his character. Luckily, this woman, she's not ready to quit. She, she, she pulls out uh, whatever chutzpah, this is what this one author says, chutzpah, temerity, guts, desperation, what it was we will never know. But this woman in the dust at Jesus' feet wrinkles into a crack in his argument, unlocks the master's heart with both fierce logic and evocative need. She says, dogs can live off the scraps too. She musters up the courage, the bravery, the chutzpah. I love that to use this kind of Hebrew-ish phrase. She raises her head to him and she owns that insult. I may be a dog, but even the dogs can live off the scraps. She doesn't stop. She shows persistent, this gritty determination. And remember, what is this all about? She wants her daughter to be healed. 
So she's willing to do whatever it takes to get her daughter healed. She'll do whatever it takes. She's desperate. And so she owns this statement like, even dogs. Yeah, I may be a dog, Jesus. You're right. Maybe I'm a dog. But the dogs can live off the crumbs. The dogs can live off the scraps. And whatever it is about this statement, it catches Jesus' attention. He is surprised by her statement. I imagine him in this irritable, grumpy, you know, I didn't come for you. You're just a dog. And now all of a sudden his eyes light up and he goes, oh, he is seeing something from a different vantage point. And this is what's weird. Is it possible for Jesus to learn something? It's a weird question that is right there in the text. Jesus seems to have like a conversion moment, an aha moment. Is it even possible for Jesus to learn? Do we have room in our construct of Jesus that he could be surprised, amazed? He could have a, oh my gosh, a change of heart because of an interaction with a human being. It's a weird question to ask. The same author who gives us this quote, he says this, Jesus' response when he says, great is your faith, is almost in the Greek like an expletive. Like, holy, you know what? You have faith? Whoa! Jesus is shocked. His mind is blown. Didn't see this coming. Just thought this annoying person, let's move on. And he goes, whoa! Woman, you have great faith. And in the course of the story, remember the context, it's as if he's saying, like, at last, someone gets it. The wrong person, wrong culture, wrong place, speaking with the wrong accent, it's all wrong, and don't you know it, it's actually right. What a weird story. What a weird story. That's the end of our text. Jesus shows that while he may not be this image of niceness, He's just nice, kind of bland, nice. That Jesus is very kind. He's willing to listen. He's even willing to learn. Dare I say, and this is where you kind of get into some weeds here on this one. He's willing to kind of change his mind on this. It's strange. Again, do we have room in our concept of Jesus God in the flesh, walking the earth, do we have room in our concept of who He is to believe that He could change His mind, could learn? It's weird. It's a weird question, but it seems like in our text today, that is exactly what has happened. Jesus has said, no, I'm not for you. In fact, you are part of this other group of people. Your time's not come yet. Whoa, maybe it has. Maybe she's right. Maybe she has great faith. And so if Jesus can learn, and I believe in this text as a result, his disciples would have learned. So the question is, can we learn? Can we learn? This is where I, I want to kind of end today and, and give us some, some what does that even mean? Can we learn? This was a question asked by a, a man that I've, I've come to be very fond of his writings, his really short commentaries on Scripture. His name is David Lose, and he's a, the president of Lutheran Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. He has just these short reflections on a lot of texts uh, over the years. Um, and, and so he asked this question, he says, you know, if Jesus can learn, if you're able to wrap your mind around that, that it's possible in this passage Jesus is learning, then it begs the question, can we learn? 
And here's what he asks. He says, I ask this because of a conversation I've repeated with literally hundreds of well-intentioned folks deeply concerned about their churches. He's training pastors. He's talking to congregations. He said, there are people concerned about their congregations, and they're asking one question. How do we get young people to come to our church? And as he's thought about that question and interacted with people, he's come to the place where he's saying, are you willing to learn? If you want to answer that question, you need to ask, are you willing to learn? And this is not just about attracting young people, but how, if you're asking the questions, as I think every church ought to be, as we certainly are here, how do we reach our community? How do we have, have ministries that reach people that are not already here, not already found, but how do we reach people who don't know Jesus? The question is, can we learn? Are we willing to listen like Jesus listened? To somebody who is emphatically not like us. Are we willing to listen are we willing to ask questions that maybe we don't even know what the questions are yet? Because we haven't engaged people who aren't attending church or, or haven't ever attended church ever. We, we just haven't engaged them enough. And, and this is something where uh, I, I'm finding as I talk to people, um, it's very easy to, to get insulated in the life of the church and go, you know, there's, there's all these people who uh, I want to spend time with who are here in my church. It's very easy to get insulated and have blinders on to what's really going on in our world, in our community. What are the questions people are asking? Do we even know? Can we learn? What it will take, I believe, is for us to have kind of an ongoing conversion. And I, I'm not using that language. Uh, actually, Bill Hybels, who I mentioned was at our Midwinter Conference a week ago, he was talking about the multiple conversions he's had in his life. We all have one conversion to Jesus. I'm not talking about like constantly converting to Jesus over and over again. What Bill Hybels mentioned is uh, going to Africa and seeing what the AIDS crisis was doing in Africa and, and his heartbreaking and being converted to an understanding that, gosh, God's word is for the poorest of the poor in our world and will I let my heart break for them? Um, for him, one of the things he shared was his heart breaking uh, for the way systemic racism is still a part of our culture and, and looking and saying, gosh, now that I've met some African-American leaders in our country, and, and he was, he's in the suburbs of Chicago in this mega church, thousands and thousands, and it's mostly white, and just kind of asking, is that the biggest picture of the kingdom of God? And he said his heart was converted towards the issues of race in our culture. And his heart was converted towards the issues of gender in our culture as he saw women, gifted women in his church that formerly were told, no, you can't preach, you can't serve, you're a woman, sorry. And his heart changing about that and seeing gifted, woman, gifted women who, who could preach, could teach, and he was converted over and over again. He learned something as time went on. I was reminded of a song by U2. Have you heard of that band? Been around a little while. U2. Back in 2000, uh, I think it was 2004, 2005, uh, they released a, a song called Crumbs from Your Table. 
And I was curious, I remember this song, and I saw I was preaching on the passage. I had a friend who worked uh, for Bono's One Campaign, which was really uh, to make a dent in the global AIDS crisis, particularly in Africa. And I was asking my friend, um, do you know something about this song? Like, what, what made them write this song? I mean, this is biblical imagery in this song. What's going on? He said, oh, yeah. So Bono, lead singer of U2, in case you haven't heard of them, went to Africa and saw just that AIDS was just wiping out entire people groups. And his heart broke for it. And he came back to the U.S. and he started meeting with evangelical church leaders and saying, you guys, this thing is going on in Africa. What are we doing about it? And he realized that, well, he was devastated in his conversations with church leaders. Because he said, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's a big issue, but we've got all these things we have to do here. We've got all these programs we have to run. We've got all this stuff we have to do. And so essentially what he heard was, we have to eat the loaf here. Maybe they could get some crumbs. Maybe we could get some crumbs over there. But so we started this organization, and, and I was looking up, uh, they've been going for 10 years now, the one uh, campaign, the one organization. Don't see it as much anymore, but they've made significant headway in fighting global AIDS, global poverty. It's, it's unbelievable. Um, actually, this was all happening during uh, President George Bush's um, time in office, and uh, Bono was invited by President Bush. I mean, this was like a, a, a nonpartisan, like, hey, we've got to respond as a people, as humanity. This is just, we have to respond. This is not a Republican-Democrat thing. This is just if we care. And, and actually, Bono was pulling on the strings of Christians. Do you care? Are you still willing to just give the crumbs? See, because he had learned something. He was converted to something and started calling others. And so the question is, will we learn? Can we learn? What is it that we need to learn? Will we listen to voices of those that we're considering outsiders? About those who, who don't know Jesus yet, will we listen? Can we learn? I think what Jesus does here is radical. It's radical. He shows he's willing to learn from a non-Jew woman with a demon-possessed kid. This is just the absolute, you want to paint a picture of the wrong person for Jesus to hang out with, to talk to, to learn something from, to engage in, a non-Jew woman with a demon-possessed kid. He had every reason, like in the story of the Good Samaritan, to just say, you know, no, not for you. In fact, this could harm my reputation. And instead, as we've seen over the course of these weeks in this sermon series, we've seen that Jesus goes to these people. Even in this weird interaction we have in our text today, can we learn? If Jesus learns, can we learn? One final story uh, I want to share with you, and it's one uh, where, where, of some people who, who also learned something new, had a kind of conversion of their actions. And I want to tell you this story is one uh, that, that has t- to do with a topic in our society and our culture right now that is, is charged. It's charged up. So I'm going to give you a little disclaimer before I tell the story, and I promise this is the last one I'll tell. Don't hear what I'm not saying. That's my disclaimer. I thought this story was important. I thought it was interesting. It gripped my heart. I don't know what to do with it yet. But it was a story of an evangelical megachurch in Nashville that changed their stance on how they were going to include members of the LGBT community in their church. Like I said, charged topic. 
they were wrestling through this, and I was listening uh, as the pastor was sharing. And he said one of the reasons was that they really decided that they needed to change their stance towards this community was that there was one particular couple in their church, a lesbian couple in their church, and uh, one of the women was assistant superintendent of schools, highly regarded in the community. Everybody loved the school district. Things were going great. The other, a family lawyer. These were people that were serving at high levels in the church but were not allowed to go all the way in service because of, of their sexuality. And so they had gone into a discernment process of what do we do about that? So this person is, in, is allowed to be in charge of the education of all the kids in the community, but we wouldn't let this person teach Sunday school to kids. And that really messed with their minds. And, and he said that as they went through the process, and they, and they went in a direction that I, again, don't hear what I'm not saying here. The direction that they ended up going is, is they said, he said they, they were they were curious why people would continue worshiping with them who were told no, who were told there's limits. Why did they keep coming? And the statement he said that caught my attention in thinking of this text, he said, though we hadn't given them a seat at the table, they were like the Syrophoenician woman willing to eat the crumbs. We were feeding them the crumbs And they kept coming back for more crumbs. That's how hungry they were. I got to tell you, when I listened to this story, I was running on the treadmill. I listened to podcasts while I run. And usually it just kind of shut off my brain. And on this one, there was something about this story that was just heart-wrenching for me, personally. I was just listening and, and wondering, are there people in our world who are desperate to get a seat at the table, to get to Jesus. They're desperate. They're on their knees. They're begging. They're crying out. I want to get to Jesus. And we're kind of like, well, maybe you can have some crumbs. Again, don't hear what I'm not saying on this. Don't hear what I'm not suggesting anything. It's an example of, are there people out there who want to find Jesus They want to eat from the table with us, with you, with me. Is there a seat at the table? There's people in our community who are like this woman. They need help with their children. They need help with their marriage, their finances, their lives are falling apart. Do they know that they can come and sit at the table with us? Do they know that? Or are we just kind of sprinkling out the crumbs and keeping the bread for us? This is the, the heart-wrenching stuff that you, we, I find at least. Maybe you're like, okay, you're crazy. You, took a, you went too far. For me, this is the stuff that pulls at my heart. Are there people that want to get to Jesus? And God, am I doing something to put up a barrier? And that, that's, can I learn? Can we learn? Can we learn? We, like the disciples, I believe, have a lot to learn. I can admit that. I have a lot to learn. So my prayer moving forward is to ask as we look at our community, what are the needs in our community? Where are people seeking Christ? Are we doing anything, am I doing anything to put up barriers to them getting to Jesus? And if so, can we learn? Will we learn? Would you pray with me? God, this is a a strange story you've given us in your word. 
I confess, Lord, there's parts about it that I, it's hard for me to take in that, that Jesus, as you walked the earth, that you could change your mind on something. I, I don't know that that fits all that easily with what I think about when I think of you, God, and you knowing all things and being above all things. I, it, it's confusing. And so, Lord, we seek your wisdom. We seek your Spirit's guidance uh, to give us clarity as to what you want to teach us, God. Make our, make our minds open, our hearts open to learning, learning something new, Lord, about you, about where you would have us go, Lord. Who in our community is like this Syrophoenician woman begging, Lord, to get a seat at the table? Help us to have eyes to see. Help us to learn. Teach us, God. Teach us, Holy Spirit. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand and join us for the closing song.